ever made a drastic change in your life? Maybe moved to another state, changed your career, or that kind of thing? Well, as we start in chapter 9 from the book of Acts, we'll see Saul having an encounter with Jesus that results in him making a 180, drastically changing the course of his life. Here's Pastor David. So I'm, I kind of geek out on, on Paul. It's such a neat, neat, that's not even a good word. It's, it's, it's an awesome story. Um, it's an incredible story. And we're going to talk about uh, Saul's conversion today. Um, and, and you'll start to see, and as we go through the rest of the book of Acts, you're going to see a lot about the story of Saul who becomes Paul. I'll use the names interchangeably. Don't get confused. Same guy. Um, but I, I'm pretty stoked about this. So we're going to start it out here. Acts 9, verse 1. It says this, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Okay. Um, the Greek here uh, suggests that he's inhaling, okay? That he's breathing in these, this threats and murder, the, the temper, okay? The temperament of those around him, of the, of the leaders, of the Jewish leaders, is a temperament, is, is, is this um, idea, this ethos of threats and murder against Jesus Christ, uh, against his disciples, against the people who are following Jesus, and in their mind changing their customs and claiming that this guy was the Messiah and claiming that they killed him. And, and all this stuff, we've seen the reaction of the Jewish leaders against the Christians, right? And so Saul is in the midst of this, and he's breathing this in, and what he's exhaling is action. And we sing a song, your breath in our lungs, so we pour, you're the breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. When Christ is the breath in our lungs, we pour out praise, we pour out good. But here, the breath in Saul's lungs is murder and threats, and out comes persecution. So that's where he is, and that's what he's doing. Paul gives an account of the story that we're going to read today. We're reading Luke giving the account about Paul, but Paul actually gives his account as he's talking uh, to a king, and he's giving this account of his life, and he talks about the same story. So we're going to, alongside with what we're reading in chapter 9, I'm going to read you from chapter 26 of Acts, Paul's own story about this. And this is what he says about where he was at the time that we're referring to here in chapter 9. At the beginning, this is what he says. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. So this is where Saul's at at this moment, okay? Vicious opposition to Jesus Christ and everything he stands for and all the people. He hates Jesus. He, he wants to shut down, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. We see it referred to the chief priest. Okay, this is Caiaphas. We've talked about this guy before. Caiaphas is a chief priest at this time in Jerusalem. He's as a chief priest who's involved when Peter and John come before the great Sanhedrin. And when all the apostles come before the great Sanhedrin, we see this guy consistently, right, ruling against the Christians, coming against the Christians, right? And so Paul's going to this guy, Saul at this point, he's going to this, to this high priest and he's saying, I want something. So it says in verse 2, 
says, and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what's he asking for? What are these letters? These letters are documents of extradition. I don't know if you guys have followed at all the story of El Chapo um, in Mexico. He was this drug lord, kingpin in Mexico who's been arrested, and we're trying to extradite him to the United States. We're trying to bring him from Mexico into a different jurisdiction, okay? And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to go to Damascus and bring these Christians back to Jerusalem so they can be imprisoned, punished, maybe killed. That's his goal. He wants to be able to go do that. And so he gets these letters to go to these synagogues there. There's a number of synagogues in Damascus so that the people there will say, yeah, go ahead and grab these folks, take them back to Jerusalem, okay? And the high priest had this kind of authority. We know that the Romans gave the Jews this kind of authority when it came to matters of their own law, okay? Matters within, you know, inside the Jewish religion, they were allowed to go and arrest people and bind them and, and do this kind of thing. So the high priest had this authority, and that's the authority that Paul was going from him to get so that he could go and, and bind these people up and bring them back, okay? Um, we know from before, as we said, that as Peter, I'm sorry, as Stephen is stoned, we see this great dispersion of Christians, right? They run. And one of the places they run to is Damascus. Damascus is about 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Okay? Um, it's in Syria, kind of on the edge of the desert. I think we have a map here. So there it is, kind of at the top of the map. Uh, this is a major point on the trade route from basically Mesopotamia, I think Babylon, Iraq, that area, down to Jerusalem. So if you're going to points east, if you're going to Mesopotamia in that area, you are going to have to go through Damascus. And so it's this major city. It's a big city. It's a trade route. It's, it's part of uh, a, a group of 10 cities, okay, that were Greek cities that were very prominent. And this is one of the more prominent cities of those 10 cities. So this is a big city, okay? And it was controlled by the Romans, but the culture, like the rest of the Roman world, was very Greek, so this is Greek would have been the, the primary language they spoke, um, and this is part of the Greek Decapolis, those 10 cities that I talked about that have been going on for, for a while, okay? And so that's, that's where Damascus is, and Saul had two possible roads to get there, as you can see on the map, one kind of on the east and one kind of on the west. The interesting thing is that western road there, he would have gone through Samaria, and then he would have gone right through Capernaum. He would have gone right through that area on the way to go destroy Jesus' followers. He would have gone through the main area of Jesus' ministry on the way there, which is a little ironic. Um, it says here, they refer to the Christians here as the way. As the way. Um, this is, they, they were not referring to Christians as Christians at this point. That, that word to describe Christians did not exist yet. That came later in Antioch. A little bit later, they started calling them Christians or little Christs. At this point, they're calling them the way. We know that Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way, the way, not a way, right? There are many ways. There are many ways. We believe that Jesus is the way, the only true way. That there may be many ways, but they don't all lead somewhere good, right? That there's one way that leads to life. That there's one way that leads to God. And that is not the message that you're going to hear out there in the world. If you, if you listen to a lot of different people, you're going to hear all these roads, all these ways lead to the same place. It's really like a cathedral with many windows. They all look in from a different perspective. 
Not true. Can't be true. Because as we've talked about before, the, many of these ways are mutually exclusive and two things that are opposite cannot both be true at the same, in the same place at the same time, right? That's obvious. That's just a rule of logic. And so before you think that I am incredibly narrow-minded, go back and watch. We talked about the skeptics for me before. Week one, we talked about postmodernism, and I think it's week six, we talked about the problem of hell. And I think in both of those places, I go pretty, pretty extensively into why... It's not at all narrow-minded to believe that Jesus is the only way. It's not any more narrow-minded to believe Jesus is the only way than to believe that always are the way. They're both true statements. They're both either true or false. The question is, which is more likely? Which is more likely? Where's the evidence? Right? And we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about where the evidence is. But we, as Christians, believe that there is one way. And Jesus clearly believed that there was only one way. And so these folks are called the way, even by their enemies. They're called the way because they were saying, we have the way, right? The Jews would have been the ones before who were saying, we know the only way. We're the only way. You've got to become a Jew. You've got to become a proselyte, get circumcised, that whole nine yards, pretty serious stuff. If you want to be in community with God and the Christians are now saying, no, we're, we know the way. The way is Jesus Christ. Let's look at the next couple of verses, three and four. Says, so as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay. So Saul's getting close to Damascus, and he sees this light, this incredible light, and it's significant that it's a light. Something you need to know about Saul is that this is a very educated man, okay? He's educated in Greek philosophy and, and those kinds of things, but he's also extremely educated in the Old Testament, in the Word of God. So he knows the uh, prophecies about the Messiah that's supposed to come. And one of those prophecies is in the book of Isaiah. It's in chapter 9, okay? And it says this, In Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And so, Saul sees this light. He, it's not a burning bush, right? Which we've seen God. It's not, it's not the appearance, you know, of an angel or something like that. It's this light, this blinding light. Jesus was showing I'm, he was the Messiah by literally showing himself in a light, starting with a light. So, Jesus asked Saul a question. Okay. First, he uses Saul's name twice. Saul, Saul. Now, you may not find that significant, but he would have. Because in the Old Testament, we see it multiple times when God is speaking to somebody. It's Abraham, Abraham. Right? He, he will come and say the name twice. This is, this is significant because it means it's a message from God. So Saul, it would not have been lost on Saul that his name was called twice here. Okay? And, and Jesus asked him a question. He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, has Saul actually persecuted Jesus? We don't know that he's ever even seen Jesus. Now, they were contemporaries, and it's very possible that at some point or another, Saul would have seen Jesus preach or seen him in Jerusalem or who knows, on his travels in Galilee. I don't know. He may have, but we don't even know that he's seen him. Certainly, there's no evidence to suggest that he's ever persecuted Jesus personally. And yet, Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these people who have become disciples or followers of mine? Why, or why did you persecute Jerry? Probably no one was named Jerry in Jerusalem at that time. But 
if they were, he doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? We have all this imagery, and we've talked about it a number of times, of the church, of those who follow Christ being his body. Being his body, right? And that is not just imagery. There is a sense in which the church is literally the body of Christ. We're, we're joined together, okay? Literally maybe too strong of a word because, you know, we're not all attached to each other walking around. But we are his body. And when he says, you're persecuting me, he's saying, if you persecute someone in my church, if you persecute anyone that's a follower of me, you're persecuting me personally because it's my body. He's the head of the body. The church is the body. Now, my head knows if my pinky finger gets hit by a hammer, I guarantee it. And in the same way, Jesus Christ knows if anyone who's a part of his body has been damaged. This is something to think about the next time that you're considering, and hopefully you do some considering before things come out of your mouth, but considering saying something to someone in anger or in frustration or doing something to somebody that you ought not to do, especially if it's a brother or sister in Christ, because if you do it to them, you've done it to Christ. He makes that very clear. You persecute the body, you've persecuted him. Right? He says in another part of scripture, whatever you've done for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Right? If you use someone as a means to an end, rather than seeing everyone as a creation of God that he loves and using everyone as an end in themselves, you are persecuting Christ. You are harming Christ. Now, what do I mean by means to an end? So if somebody is, you're using them, okay, for what they can give you, then you are using them as a means to an end. You are trying to gain something, and so you use that person to get it. Whether that's you lie to them when you're selling them something so that they'll buy something so you can get a commission, whether that's you're, you're, you're looking at pornography or, or, you're, or you're lying to people or you're cheating or you're stealing or whatever you're doing, right? Whatever you're doing where you're doing something to somebody else so that they can be useful to you, you're seeing that person as simply a means to some end of yours, as a thing and not as a person. Whenever you do that, you are doing that to Christ and seeing him as a thing and not the God of the universe. So keep that in mind. Acts uh, 9 verse 5 says, And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Saul asks who's speaking to him. But you'll notice that he calls him Lord. Okay, That's not like saying Mr. When you say Lord, you're saying Master. The one who I'm submitted to, the one who is in charge. It's a name that is used for God. So he's basically saying, who are you, God? Because he has spent all this time fighting against Christ. And then he sees this vision and, this, and, the, and the light that comes and so on, recognizing that there's an issue here. Maybe he doesn't know who God is like he thought he did. He says, who are you? Jesus identifies himself. I'm Jesus, which I think... I think Saul knew was coming. Um, and I'm guessing Saul is completely undone by this. Okay? We've talked about, I mean, let's, let's remember what's going on. He's on his way to Damascus to, to tie up and bring back the followers of Jesus Christ. Now he finds out that Jesus Christ is God and is accusing him of persecuting him. Okay? Let's not forget that earlier, the Sanhedrin, we had Gamaliel stand up and say, 
You know, be careful that you, what you do to these men, because if it's nothing, it'll go away. But if it's something, you might find yourself fighting against God. Oops. Paul, Saul, has found himself fighting against God. And Jesus uses this term, kicking against the goads, which is actually just a colloquialism that was used at the time. We see it in Greek and Latin. Uh, I lived at the South for about six years, and they have a lot of colloquialisms, okay? A lot of little things. Some of them, I have no clue what they're talking about. And you just smile and nod. You have no idea what this thing that they just said means. Some of them are pretty funny. Some of them are just weird. But they have a lot of them, right? And Jesus here uses one. Not, not a southern one, um, but one from the Greek and Latin world. And the, what it means, kicking against the goad. So let me get that picture up really quick. A goad, if you see this guy in the middle, he's holding like a stick with a point. This is the best picture I could find, seriously. But he's holding a stick with a little prick on the end of it. Some translations say kicking against the pricks. That little stick with that prick is used to make the oxen go the way you want them to. Faster, right? Left, right. But sometimes the ox might get a little annoyed that he's being pricked and he'd kick back. The problem is, is you're holding a prick behind it. So when he kicks back, that prick goes into him. So the more he kicks back, the more he hurts himself. And Jesus is saying, it's hard to kick against the pricks. It's hard to kick against the goads. I have been trying to show you something and you have been rejecting it. And here I am now. And with the real smackdown, right? And so he's, he's calling Saul out on this, saying, you're, you're persecuting me. You're kicking against the goads. You're going against what I, as God, am doing here. Okay. Um, let's look at Acts 9, verse 6. It says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Um, Yeah, trembling and astonished, you think? Yeah, we just talked about how you'd be trembling if you were in that situation. I mean, even if Jesus was saying something nice to me, if I see that and blinding light and the rest of that, I'm going to be trembling because God is powerful, right? But I can't imagine if he's really mad at me especially for the kind of stuff that Saul was doing, right? So he's trembling, and he's astonished, right? But here's what he does. This is interesting. He responds correctly. What do you want me to do? What do I need to do? I I lose. You win. I realize. I I messed up. Lord, right? When When you say, give me your instructions, you're submitting. He immediately submits and recognizes his error and recognizes through this experience that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that this is God. This this part of the story Paul describes also um, when he's before the king. Later on in chapter 26, he says this, At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had We all had fallen to the ground. I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now this is new, this next part. 
But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, when Luke tells us the story. He doesn't include all of it. It's not inconsistent. He's just telling us part of it because the point of the story, he's showing the conversion experience. Paul, when he tells a story and he's explaining to the king, tells more than just the conversion experience, but also lets this king know what the Lord had set out for him to do. And he's made it very clear here, right? Paul's going to go and do something that's very different than his mindset had been in the past. His mindset was, you have to become Jewish and follow the Jewish traditions, and it's the only way to God. And here he's saying, look, you're going you're gonna to go to these Gentiles, these people who you thought were dirty, these people who you thought were, were separated and, and away from God, and they, through faith in Christ, are going to get an inheritance along with the Jews. And so this is, this is flipping his world. That's quite a story, isn't it? Talk about a dramatic change. As Pastor David said, this turned Saul's world upside down and changed the course of his life. So how about you? Have you let Jesus do that same thing in your life? Well, that's what he wants. And just like with Saul, he wants to change your life for all eternity. And it's the most wonderful and exciting thing that can ever happen. Now, if you still have questions or need help figuring all this out, come see us at Acts Church this Sunday morning. Get directions and all the info you need at actschurchnw.org or give us a call at 360-885-9000. Hope to meet you this Sunday. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode with more on the transformation of Saul here on Contemplate.